following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Did you know there were over one million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fun hunting for your brilliant brunch Riesling. Ham's sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! The only thing you can count on is change. I truly, honestly, if you really think about that statement. And for me, a very type A planner type, that took a while to realize. But now I, now that I've taken it in, I've, it's really kind of set me free um, to say, like, everything's always going to change. You're never going to get it right the first time. But it's the fear of failing that stops you or it's the um, reaction to the fail that can stop you. So as long as you fail, you trip, you pick back up, you keep going, you learn from it so you don't keep doing the same yeah. thing. Um, that's how you move forward for anybody in anything, I, I think. Welcome to the Forbes Under 30 Podcast. I'm Steve Goldblum, your host. On this show, we speak with young entrepreneurs and innovators. Today, we have in studio Beatrice Fischel-Bach. She is the co-founder and CEO of Hutch, an online and mobile platform that mixes 3D technology and online shopping to help you design and furnish your home for free. And you go by B. I do go by B. Okay, so I'll call you B. Call me B. I'll call you B. And you're here in the studio. I always make a big deal of that, but it is exciting because like 98% of the people, it's over the phone. It's it's much nicer talking to a face in front of me, so I'm excited to be here. You went to GW. I did. Uh, when you were at GW, were you majoring in business? What were you studying? No. So actually, it's funny that I didn't major in business. Looking back, maybe I would have, but maybe I wouldn't be here today if I did. I studied interior architecture and design and fine arts and art history, so I was totally on the art side. Um, and had no business, anything, any kind of training. And uh, my training was getting on Shark Tank because preparing for Shark Tank was so intense and reading. I read my personal MBA. It's an amazing book that really makes everything kind of concise and makes sense Um, and kind of learned on the job that way. And I don't think I would have learned as well or taken as seriously. I don't know what would have happened, but no business training and – now I feel like I do fully understand business. And taking a moment to thank our supporters, Veridesk, Amica Insurance, and Rocket Mortgage. More about these companies later in the show. Hutch, it's a, re- it's a really smart idea, and you can see why you would be invited to places like Forbes and on, these, and on, on Shark Tank. So why don't you just lay out for people listening yeah, exactly how Hutch works. Sure. So you take a photo of your space, and you actually can shop and design for your home for the furniture or decor you're buying while looking at the space you're buying for. So it's kind of like having a virtual dressing room for your home. So while you're shopping, you're building out your room, and then you can buy everything seamlessly, uh, one-click checkout, and it comes all to your doorstep. So how? where can people use it? They use it on, their, in, on any device? Any device. We have um, web, any native mobile app, and uh, yeah, so it kind of works for in any which way you want to access our technology in our, our product. So you're in D.C.? No, we're in L.A. No, but when you oh, were in when, D.C., yes, yes. where were you when – because there's like five co-founders, right? Yes. So where were you when, when you when you had this epiphany for Hutch? What was your role in the, in, in the company the early on? So we started uh, – it was three of us in college, and we met in our first interior architecture design class. And it was a very small class, 20 people, and we kind of stayed together. So we started working together a lot, and we went abroad our junior year to London – and our friends, because it's kind of a city school, they were moving into their first apartments, and they were having a lot of problems with, like, I don't know what's going to – what should I buy? 
help me design friends. So they would email us photos of their apartment, and we realized through our training that we could scale the room according to standard measurements, like outlets are always 16 inches above the floor, doorways are always 36 inches, or but there's always standards around what we learned in our courses. And so we were able to scale the room without asking for dimensions and then actually send them links to buy furniture. And they loved it, and it worked. And, we, and when we got back to school, there was a business plan competition. It's school-wide for alumni and everyone. I think we were the definitely the blondest in the auditorium and the first from our interior architecture, so the three of us are blonde. Um, and we submitted our executive summary. It took two weeks to write one page. <laughs> and because, because there's so many people. There's so many. Well, it's, it's we didn't understand even what an executive summary was. And you kind of – you don't just learn that part, right? You have to go dive really deep and then right. write your executive summary. So we were learning about business plans and everything that it meant to run a business. We were, again, juniors, no business training whatsoever. So we wrote the executive summary um, and didn't make it past first round. <laughs> but it didn't actually – luckily, I did a TEDx talk on fail fast, fix fast, learn yeah, fast. Yeah, and I want to get to that. And so for us, it's, it was a failure that pushed us to keep going and actually say, you know what? Forget it. Um, we are going to just do – we're going to do us. We're going to put our websites together, do it really cheap, bootstrapped, and start charging $150. And so we started doing that, and we would have everything shipped to our dorm rooms. So we'd be living in boxes. Right. And then on the weekends, we would go actually install the spaces, the three of us, for free, nine hours. We had full course loads, part-time jobs, and then on the weekends, we were installing our designs. But it really allowed us to see this is how it comes to life, and this actually works, and we can virtually design. Six years ago, people were still kind of, well, are people going to buy online furniture? They can't sit in it. Do they trust it? This was before Wayfair, which is a huge furniture e-commerce mm-hmm. site, went public. Um, so it was kind of... It was a question, which is weird now because that's definitely no longer a concern. Um, but we would every every time we would see it nine hours later, ten fights throughout the day, we would see a beautiful space come together, and that was kind of the beginning for us. So, people, when, when was the first purchase? That was when um, that time in college was like the first client would spend. They would they were spending around fifteen hundred. Mm-hmm. The college students at that time we weren't taking any margins we hadn't set up our wholesale partnerships or anything so we weren't making any money there it was just the 150 <laughs> but didn't the, the company earn uh, we did a million, a million in, in, in revenue yeah with once we turned on buying furniture for our customers so that was right. our t- senior year we started doing that so w- there's three yes. w- who are the two uh, outlying uh, founders that so then the other two that we met um after college after shark tank we met sean rad from tinder right and he was he had a furniture app idea back in his iac days and so when he saw us on shark tank he reached out we got c- together one of my co-founders is from la so we got together out here and he started helping us and he was like i have a couple people you should meet and it was through those people that we met our other two co-founders that bring in the tech knowledge and the product knowledge that we didn't have at the time right um and they're ben Broca, he's from France, actually, and he came from New York. He moved to L.A. the same day as us, and we met the day later. Um, so we kind of think it was fateful. And then Ethan Gromet, he's a USC entrepreneur kid who uh, designed our whole app before we actually, like, all came together and right. and did it. Now, before we go, I, I want to get into Shark Tank, and I want to get into the mentorship of, of Rad. But the um, having that many people involved – it has to get messy at times. Yes. Right? It's very messy. But I love this quote from I don't I don't know the quote exactly from Steve Jobs, but he talks about when a bunch of rocks like go into a tumbling machine overnight, mm-hmm. it's very loud and tumultuous, but in the morning you open it up and they're like perfect stones. And you know, whatever. <laughs> and um, so that's kind of how I feel about that. It's like we push each other, there's a lot of not fights, but arguments and pushing each other. And I think as long as it's conducive to the next step, it's actually helpful. Um 
doing it alone would be impossible. <laughs> That's for sure. That's true. Yeah. And we learned early on because at first it was always like we do it all together. Like every we're, we're a team and we do everything together. And then we realized you have to divide and conquer. So mm-hmm. what are each other's strengths and weaknesses? Being very self-aware of those strengths and weaknesses and kind of really diving into those. And that's when I'm very bossy and I can get things together and I have like a natural leadership ability. Yeah. So I naturally became CEO and it kind of, it, it just naturally happened. And we you all, insisted on becoming CEO. No, it just came up. <laughs> I remember Sean was like, who's CEO? And we, the, we looked at each other and we we're like, and then they pointed to me and I was like, I guess I could be. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. You know, there's three of you. You're the co-found, the co-founders of the company. You're growing together. You're also growing apart. It's just only natural. I'm sure conflict came up. Yes, and it still does today. <laughs> and it still does and, and will continue to. So how, what are lessons that you can uh, tell us that you, yeah. you learned how to deal with it? So I think uh, this is something that I'm confident in my abilities. I call it wrangling people, um, not in a negative way, but in a, in, a, in a way of just saying. So it's always – I just reread actually a book called um, Crucial Conversations. And it talks a lot about something that I've done naturally, which is you find where they are with their view of what the situation is. And you you understand where they're coming from, and then you frame it specifically for that situation, knowing what they want, knowing what you want, and how to what's your common purpose is what this crucial conversation says, and what do you both want? Let's like start that conversation with, look, we all want this, um, but this is what's happening to stop us from getting there, and we we all know we want to get there, so what can we do to change that? Um, and there's different styles of of helping conflict with different people, right? Some people need a little fire and they need you to kind of like fight back because right. that's what they're looking for. I have a specific co-founder of mine and then others need a much more sensible conversation. Um, and so it's, it's really, it's, it's something like contextual framing. There's some really great, I can't think of the phrase about finding the context and, mm-hmm. and the point of view of the person that you're having conflict with and figuring out how to get to the same, um, meeting them goal. where they are. Yeah. And, and knowing, yeah, knowing how to talk to them about that. So if we're co-founders, me and you, and I'm feeling like uh, my ideas aren't being listened to or something like that or somebody – there's too many other people involved. How, how would you approach me? How would you deal with me? So if it was about not having your ideas heard, which of course happens all the time, um, it would be about, okay, let's lay out like what's our goal? What, what are these ideas towards? Right. And so if it's about if it's just the brand, let's use the brand as an example, because it's so subjective branding. Right. Mm-hmm. It, that's a really hard thing for us because there's no factual there's no facts behind it. When you do a product feature, you can see the data mm-hmm. and you can decide if you cut it or not. But when you pick a color or a font or a logo or a general feeling, there's no you don't know who's going to like it or not. And five co-founders have very different opinions. And so it's it's laying out kind of, OK, what are your opinions? What are everyone else's opinions? What's the end goal and what's doable right now? Right. And why isn't it doable? And really, I, I realize a lot of it's just clarity of the of the situation. It turns out that a lot of people they get all angry in their head about something, and they haven't actually realized the whole bi- sorry the whole sorry. bigger situation. Um, and when you lay it out in front of them, most people, especially hopefully the people you've decided to co-found a company with, are pretty. You know, they can they can take it in and understand where you're coming from. And people actually appreciate people who are going through something, any kind of conflict. The, the people like yourself who can deal with it head on. Yes. People experience, appreciate that, exactly. right? Because they're already feeling it. Yeah, and then and then it clears, and then it's we on to the next big problem. <laughs> Why do you think you have a talent for dealing with conflict? I'm the older sister. Maybe that ties into it. Um, I don't know. It's just something I have. And I think that's, that's how I, in general, like business and partnerships, I'm very good at figuring out what the other person needs or wants and then making sure that there's a context around that and how we can play together. Nothing about you shies away from conflict. Uh, I hate it, but it doesn't shy. I always want to be the fixer. 
Maybe because I hate it because I don't like having it around. It's not so fight or want. flight. Yes, you exactly. fight. Yeah, and get it, get it out, get it done, get it figured out, and move on. I love to do lists. Like I'm a big <laughs> checkbox person. <laughs> so it's like I actually had that once in a while. It's like a to do list. Like fix this situation. <laughs> and what I'm learning is it never ends. I Spencer Raskoff, CEO of Zillow. He's uh, not my mentor like Sean, but he's definitely been been pretty helpful. And I asked him like, what do you define as being a CEO? Because he was COO and he was CMO and he was CFO of Zillow before he became CEO. So he really kind of understands the job fully. And he told me, and it really stuck with me, this was the first time I met him a year and a, a year ago. And he said, CEOs are about finding people who do everything better than you and bringing them together and keeping them happy. And that really resonated. It's like, that's your job. It's not to do it all yourself or to tell everyone, shut up and don't listen. It's to actually bring them together and then be the person who's resolving all the conflict to keep really great people together working towards the same goal. And it's not at all a soft skill. It is a crucial skill. It's a crucial skill. And it's, I don't know that it's learnable. Yeah. <laughs> um, crucial conversation says it is, which maybe it is, but it is, it's a very innate thing. Um, I guess if you really try and practice, <laughs> you can get there, but, um, and reading books like crucial conversation would be something. Book. Yeah. It's helpful. Right. And crucial accountability is good too. How, um, hard is it to get over ego? When you're working with that many people. So I'm talking to a man, so I don't know if this will mean the same to you, but I have found that men have a lot more ego than women. Yeah. And so the three of us, when we were working together, there was no ego involved. That's and then suddenly bringing men into the fold and even, you know, watching a lot of, I get a lot of advice and mentorship and mm-hmm. a lot of them are men and they have big egos. And it's funny to see the difference. Um, I think we accepted a lot more help in the beginning, which has brought us to where we are today. Right. Um, and so not having those egos was very helpful. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes Under 30 podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask, why? Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to the rate and term in real time? And why can't there be client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. So, I mean, the ego of them, and, and there's been studies about this too in women's leadership yep. and, that, and that women do actually bring more people in and are more inclusive. Yep. And I guess there is a lack of ego because mm-hmm. it shows a sense of security. Of, it's not all about me. I don't yeah. run the whole show. I want people to come in and you're and do stable this enough to bring in better exactly. people ar- yeah. around. Uh, but with men and, and with ego in general, it can be uh, this was my idea, and now there's yeah. like three other people, four other people who are going to claim and reap the benefits of something that I did. Yeah, and that wasn't some of you. No, experience. and it was for for us. It, it's the ideas are cheap, right? I mean, you can come up with a million ideas. It's the execution and it's the ability to actually get to the next level. Um, so, yeah, ideas are important, but they are the easy part. <laughs> so I don't put too much cloud on that. You're kind of 
I'm trying to picture. So what, what year was this when you were at GW with the idea came? In junior year. So that was uh, 2008. 2000, no, whoa. I was thinking high school. Yeah. <laughs> 2012. 2012, okay. Is when it, it got incepted. So it's like perfectly aligned with the rise of Pinterest and the rise yes. of like empowering creative design, right? Yeah, exactly. And bring, yeah, bring the power to users through technology and not no longer having to schlep to a West Elm and trying to imagine it in your space. And now you go to West Elm and they don't even hold any inventory, <laughs> right? It's just like a show house for their website. They're kind of surprised to see you. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember going shopping somewhere at a store and they're just like, what? What do you need? Uh, I think there's somebody in the back <laughs> yeah. that can show you around, but we'll, we'll have to get back to them. And we have nothing for you to yeah. buy. But... Uh, does it feel comfortable? <laughs> um, so the, tell me how Shark Tank came about. How, how did how do you get on Shark Tank? Oh, my God. That was such a process. Um, Shark Tank came about because we didn't know about the VC world. We had no touch in that and raising money, and we, we didn't have any business backgrounds, and we were in D.C. We just didn't know about it. But the one thing we did know about was Shark Tank. Um, and so it was on a whim, and one of my co-founders was the one who really pushed us to do it, and I'm glad she did. <laughs> At that time, it was horrifying. And we started applying six months before we actually got the okay. So the whole process was a year and a half, and it was video after video. You kept making the next level, the next level, the next level, and then finally – Video after video. You, like, you submit a video yeah, of what submitting. you look like. I think we okay. ended up doing three or four, mm-hmm. explaining your company, and they had to be cute, and you do the whole thing, and it, yeah. it was <laughs> – and we had – Anyways, um, go, what were you going to say? So we had our camera set up on the kitchen counter, and we were redoing an accent wall in fast motion, and then we would sit and talk. Okay. And we had our script. Like a time lapse of everything. Yeah. yeah. And we had our script on the laptop, and someone was moving it for us as we're trying to look at the camera. Oh, that's Just hilarious. Looking back at the videos, it's embarrassing. But it got us on the show. Of course. And so when you're on the show. So when you're on the show, you get you get told that you're on, and then you go and actually film it, but you're never sure it's going to air until you, you see it with your own eyes. With 10 million viewers, that's really hard as a business, as yeah. you can imagine, preparing for that. So yeah. they give you two weeks' notice. You might be on this season, but we still don't confirm it, right? You, you sign contracts that are Is it intense? High. I mean, are you backstage? Like, I, I mean, if I was producing Shark Tank, I'd, I'd want it to make it as uncomfortable for you as possible because that's what's going to bring out the drama. Right? Yeah. It, I Actually, surprisingly, the, the experience there was really nice because when we were in the tank, we were there for an hour. Yeah. And we're with five people who actually have a lot to say and a lot to share. Yeah. And it felt very um, mentory, and we got a lot of good advice. Um, and, of course, there were moments that – TV captured and edited to make very intense. But the right. overall experience when we walked away was like, whoa, that was cool. Like, we actually learned some things from those five people, even though there were 10 cameras, you know, booming around us. Yeah. Um, but it, it was cool. But the experience, of course, is intense. You stay at a hotel for two days and you're wanted at 5 a.m. and then you're waiting around set and you're waiting in trailers. And stuff. And they really do – they can really manipulate the silence I yes. find of those shows, right? Like yes. moments where you just gave it a moment's pause can be like can a 10-second yes. deliberation. Exactly. And questions don't necessarily align with answers and oh, okay. the whole editing game. You should write an essay about that. <laughs> <laughs> when I have the time. <laughs> <laughs> and Barbara Corcoran was going to make an offer, but she backed out. No. Well, what? no. So what happened – I don't even know if I'm really allowed to get into all this, but whatever. Um, it was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. We made a deal. It was a handshake deal. Um, and you sign a paper saying, like, we agree to keep going and we're not going to talk to other investors. And then it took a few months of um, due diligence. And we started to realize that it was cash quarterly 
and no advisement from her necessarily. So it was really just that cash, which we didn't need. We okay. needed the advisement from Barbara Corcoran, and she had that whole real estate. She has an incredible real estate company that we think aligns really well. Um, and so we ended up kind of mutually agreeing that we don't want the cash unless it comes with her advisement and her saying, well, this is how it works. Right, right. Um, her, and that's her mentorship. Kind of how, yeah. So speaking of mentorship, when you meet with uh, Sean Rad, yes. the CEO of, of Tinder – well, no longer founder. the CEO. Founder, founder of Tinder. Founder of Tinder. Founder of Tinder. Founder of Tinder. XEO. Right when Tinder is is hitting. Yep. Right? And it's coming out and, and changing the way people meet. Um, so first of all, how does the relationship come about and how does he uh, – how do you collide? Yeah, so it was interesting. It was um, – at this point, it was two and a half years ago. So it was right – they were really at the top, but it was right after that sexual harassment situation with his co-founder. Um, and he was president at the time because – of that situation. Okay. And so he's pretty bored as president. He's a guy who likes to do a lot of things and mm-hmm. he's, um, you know, he's a doer. And so that's why he had reached out. He's very interested in the angel investing community and helping startups in LA. And two and a half years ago, there wasn't such a startup scene. I've noticed just moving here in two and a half years, how crazy it is. Especially different. in Venice. Yeah. yeah. It's insane. And Silicon Valley investors two and a half years ago would be LA was a bad thing. It was like, well, you're in LA, but okay, we'll do it. And now when I see them, they're like, what's going on in LA? And they send their venture partners every month just to meet people. Right. So it's been a big uh, change. Anyways, uh, we met and he was pretty bored helping. And he got so excited about the idea that a couple weeks into planning and doing wireframes and starting to make intros with VCs, he was like, what if I joined? Um, and I would be CEO. And I said, fine, I would be COO under you. Uh-huh. Um, and we started taking investor meetings with him as CEO. And we were raising like ludicrous amounts. Uh, and Tinder asked him back as CEO. Right. So he went back, but he stayed very invested, invested personally. He's my mentor. He's our chairman now. Okay. Um, and so that's how it all went down. Talk about, a little bit about that, that, that experience, raising that kind of capital. So it took over so over two years of raised seventeen and a half million. Uh, we started with two fifty. That was probably the hardest amount to raise. It's always why the the first person to put in is the hardest. Yeah. Once one investor puts in, the rest kind of follow suit because they need someone needs to be the champion uh-huh. to be like I trust and I'm putting this in. So that was really the hardest one. Um, and then it was two fifty, and then six months later it was a million, and then six months later a million, and it was really all about um, showing that you're doing something, that things are changing every few months. And I think someone um, – there's a great blog post about how VCs see you as dots on a graph. And every time they meet you, because they meet you so much and they're not always mm-hmm. giving you a yes or no answer, and it's very frustrating. But the game to play is to always show that every time you meet them, they can put a dot that shows that you're moving in the right direction. And when they start seeing some sort of pattern, then they get comfortable to invest. Right. And so it's just it's – just, it's, Keep going, keep going, keep is, going. Is morale the hardest part at yes, that? Yes, because you're saying the same thing every you're day. You're saying the same thing every day. Showing the same deck. Showing the same deck, showing the same excitement, getting, you know, bullied. Not bullied, but yeah. getting kind of all, you know, where all the weak spots and getting that beat up a lot. Yeah. Um, but you get better each time, which is good, but tiring. Can and you, you just have to keep going. Can you talk a little bit about your experience um, as a woman raising money? Because I know you've. You've had some problems with that. Yes, of course. <laughs> as, as, as all women have. As all women yeah. have, um, and especially the space. Well, I guess every space, honestly. Male-dominated. Um, male-dominated and of serious lack of uh, – like disperse of power, right? Yeah. Obviously, you're asking for money. Um, I was massaged once during a meeting. <laughs> How did that happen? 
I don't know. It wasn't, you know, it's not affronting at the time. You're not like, yeah, because it's not illegal what that he's doing, but you're just it's like, absurd. this is weird yeah. and uncomfortable. And obviously, you would never massage someone else. And it's not like I'm being massaged on a table, right. but I'm just reaching across the table and it's okay. It'll be fine. Massage, massage. And it's like, mm. but I have no power and that, to do it. And the anything, dynamic is so it's just strange. off because so you're off. there. Yeah. I, I can't do anything, right? Like, there would be nothing for me to say. I mean, I could get stroppy with him and then he would just say other things to. Oh. She's difficult. They're all buddies, She's difficult right? to it's work like whole, with. Yeah, Don't whole, just write her yeah. off. Yeah. It's a very tight circle. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my thing was always, one thing I do a lot is I swear <laughs> in investor meetings as really? a woman. Yeah. And I've gotten feedback that it's not the best thing in the world, but I still stand by it because I think it just shows a little bit more dominance and just kind of, yeah. I know men swear with each other, but it's like this weird thing, like decor, uh, you swear just in the middle, like, like I'll just like, or? I like drop, like I'm talking to anyone yeah. and I do that at work too. Um, but I've noticed that that kind of, for some reason, there's something about that that makes you a little like they less don't like mess feminine. With you. Yeah. Okay. So that's, that's been one of my tricks. Um, and the other is it took me a while to do this, but to embrace being a girl. So at first I would always dress like really simple and um, much more guy-like and try to be no makeup and minimal. And then I realized actually that's part of my different differentiating quality and yeah. especially with a design company, a creative company. And then I, I went back to myself and started dressing up more and felt more like me and it, and it worked well. It's really interesting. Yeah. I, I actually I come from a background of very strong women. My my okay. sister's a banker okay. surrounded by men. Yep. Who had like a diversity and gender committee group started by only men. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, I mean, the, that's how they yeah. And my fiance is an, is a, a very a powerful Hollywood agent. Okay. And always with men and and they will say cuz she she can say things that sound aggressive yep. and men will quite qualify and they'll say what I think she was trying to yeah. say is and she'll go, you know, she doesn't tolerate that yeah. for about a second. Yep. Yeah. And the the big thing in the office that we have a theme of mansplaining. Yeah. Oh, my God. When we started talking about it, it actually worked really well. So just having it out in the open yeah. and just letting a man know when they're mansplaining. How do you do that? They don't want to be mansplaining. We made it much more jokey. So it was, like, funny when they mansplained, but we were still making a point. And so you don't have to get aggressive about it, but just because a lot of men I don't think want to be doing any of that, right? It's just kind of – it's society. And so those little – Little tweaks and little reminders. Where's an example of good. how it happens? It happens a lot. I mean, I've been mansplained about the furniture industry. Like, you, you'll get it in every which way. And the funniest was when we got mansplained about actually interior designing a room. And like, no, but the sofa goes over here. And we're like, you have no background on this. We went to school for this, and you're taking time to tell us how to design this space. Right. It's an ignorance, and it's a lot of showing – like we were talking Dominance about ego before ego, yes. of, of knowledge. Yep. People want yep. you to know. And what what's interesting, know. and I'm learning with age, I mean, I'm only 26, but or only, I don't know, but <laughs> the startup world, but I'm learning that everyone is playing their part of confidence. And so I guess what took me a while, it's the whole imposter syndrome. I always <laughs> thought, you know, you show confidence, you must yeah. know. But it turns out now that I'm learning so much more, they don't know. They're just showing confidence. And actually, no one really knows. And so right. that gives me more confidence to be more confident about what I do and don't know. Tell me about the imposter syndrome. It's constantly being like, well, I'm just here by luck and by chance, and it's not really me. It's this, it's this, it's this. Yes, maybe, but that's the case for everyone. Mm-hmm. And so somehow for me, that makes it, it makes me more confident. It's not telling me that I am better than everyone else. It's just telling me that everyone feels that way, and everyone kind of fakes it in the end. And we'll be right back after this quick break. 
This year, the office cubicle turns 50 years old. It hails from an age when work was done on typewriters and smoking at your desk was the norm. Today, employees are expecting more from their workspace. They want flexible and active spaces where they can collaborate and feel energized. Veradesk Active Workspace Solutions make it easy to encourage more movement to any workday. Being more active at work, like standing more and sitting less, can help improve your health, boost energy, and increase productivity. Veradesk has a variety of desk solutions that replace traditional office setups, require little to no assembly, and are ready to use in minutes. Plus, Veradesk products are made from commercial-grade materials meant to last a lifetime. They're easy to move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. You can try Veridesk risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns if you're not satisfied. See it for yourself at Veridesk.com. That's V-A-R-I-Desk.com. And this podcast is brought to you by Amica Auto Home and Life Insurance. When you call Amica, you can expect a different experience because Amica is all about customer service that goes above and beyond the ordinary. You always get the help you need when you call Amica. Visit Amica.com slash Forbes today. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Every bunny loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stocking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers. Have you all, have the team of uh, founders, all women? No, two men, three women. Right, but the three women who went to oh, GW. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Initially, the originals. I liked it, the originals. The originals, the originals yeah, the OGs. Were women. The OGs were women. <laughs> uh, have you guys helped boost each other up in terms of reminding each other that, of those things? Yes, I think yeah. we have. And um, Sean's such a great mentor, and he's really my number one cheerleader. He's always, because he's my chairman, and he's in those board meetings, yeah. and he always reminds me. My board is Sean Spencer Ruskoff, the CEO of Zillow. And then Steve Oskui, who wow. was a partner at Founders Fund. Yeah. So it's a billions of dollars in the yeah. room and yeah. me. Um, but he does a really good job of always reminding me, like, they invested in you. Like, be confident in what you're doing and, like, remember to assert yourself. And he's really my my voice in my ear when I'm feeling down, which is not a man. But I think those are the parts that successful um, – very powerful men have to play because they're all the ones with the power. So right. they have to help women and then I'll help women. And that's kind of how you make the change. If I get mentored by – I used to get always intro to women funds. And I, although it's a very nice thought, women funds have a lot less money. Founders Fund had right. a billion-dollar fund for where we got our money from. And these women funds have 500000 to mm-hmm. give away. And it's like that's nice and I want to support women, but I want to go get millions, not – a couple it's, thousand. It's very dismissive. And it's, it's yeah. just – and I know it comes from a good place, but it's not how we rise up. Can you – going back to um, the business, people can hang and park on the site for as long as they want and they're not paying. Yes. They're kind of – they're building and they're creating things and they only pay on the like – when they make the payment. Mm-hmm. So what was the gap that you filled? Got it. So we've iterated three times, mm-hmm. and it's all around figuring out how to be profitable and make unit economics work. Um, so at first, we were charging a fee. We weren't interested in that because it doesn't go mass market. That's for people interested in the process of an interior designer, online or not. It's still a process. Mm-hmm. And we're really going after anyone who wants to buy furniture. So that's when we iterated to Homey, which was all chat-based. And so you chat with a designer. So people would for 20 hours be chatting with their designers. And so the perfect client would chat for two hours by $2,500 worth, and we would make our unit economics work with our right. margins because we right. get 20 
20 to 40 percent margins, but they get eaten up by chatting for free. Mm-hmm. And that's when we decided it was about six months in, and it was going really well. Of course, people loved it, <laughs> and people were buying a lot, but are you yeah. it wasn't working. And you just have to keep raising insane amounts of money. And raising money seems glamorous, but you're giving away your – it's like celebrating getting a mortgage. Like you're giving away parts of your company every time you're doing it. So it's not actually a success. <laughs> um, and you don't have to – you don't want that to be part of your business model. Yeah. So Hutch was the iteration of Homie saying like where can we bring technology into scale? And it was about visualizing the room. The designer would always put a little – render together on Photoshop and send it to the client and that was the aha moment for them and they were like oh I get what you're talking about perfect let's do it or whoa this is totally off Mm -hmm. and so we said if we could do that um, we can scale that and make it free and and really build that technology so that was the latest round of funding from Zillow was working on that technology and then doesn't the fact that it's free and that people are parked on the site for as long as they are people who are buying things um, extremely attractive to advertisers so doesn't that become a big source of revenue yes we're thinking about that um, the problem with millennial brands and we're millennial maybe a little bit older millennial is they feel um, you don't want to be you don't want to feel like you're being advertised to and and there's like an authenticity to having a brand that doesn't have the advertisements because mm-hmm. we thought about that because we our product cards could be for advertisers Anywhere, from West yeah. and anything. Um, and it might cheapen it. I don't know. We'll see. We'll get there. To, to be determined? To be de- determined. Right now, it's really it's, – it's a lot of engineering and technical build. Okay. And what is the – what do you know about the usership, the average viewer on the site? So we know – what's interesting is when we started, we, we assumed it would be urban – people in apartments but it turns out they have no space for furniture <laughs> and it's actually the whole country and we've we've done all 50 states and everyone needs home uh needs help with their furniture but especially those homes where it's much more f- affordable to buy a five-bedroom house but you have to fill all five bedrooms so that was a big lesson learned uh 70 women not a surprise we I w- i'm very interested in the man part because this is the easiest thing for them to have nice places but it's a it's a harder acquisition right like the, it, it ends up costing more to try to get a man to read a facebook post about interior design and us helping with furniture right so i think we'll get there with time and and brand awareness um but it's definitely women between 25 and 35 mm-hmm. a lot of young moms um the big thing is that we used to graduate college get married um buy a couch that lasts us 30 years with our mortgage in the suburbs and now we're we're moving every year i've moved every year since i graduated college and it's more expensive to move my stuff across the country or to other states than it is to buy new mm-hmm. and so there's this need to iterate on furniture that there didn't used to be and also our expectation was that i can do it in no time right and as you know as uh it's free but as not expensive as possible mm-hmm. and how many how many times has the company iterated so Hutch is the third iteration. Right. Um, I went Zoom Interiors, which was the Shark Tank one. Homie was chatting with your homie designer, and Hutch is the is the big tech one. Each time you have a rebranding, is that an yes. exhausting experience exhausting. where you never want to go through it again, or what is it like? <laughs> it's exhausting. I think it's it it kind of speaks to having so many voices. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you have one CEO founder, you. You have one brand probably because they said – but for us, it was always like a mixture of what everyone wanted and then it was the next mixture. And um, this latest iteration is a little bit more one voice. I'm taking a little bit more control over the brand and um, not necessarily because I can do it best but because it can be one voice and I, I have the title to make it my voice. So. Right. <laughs> so on that. Y- since you were – you know, you were 19 when you came up with the idea? 20? No, we were 21. 2021, yeah. 2021, when you look now, you're mid to late 20s. Oh, God. <laughs> um, 
how have you changed? How have you how have you as co-founders grown either together or apart? How are you different from when you? So I live with one of my co-founders. Um, yeah, you still? Yeah. Okay. We're pretty close. Because <laughs> my husband's across the country, so I need a roommate. Um, yeah. We've I don't know. We've really grown with and without each other. Um, I think a lot of us we've grown because of each other's feedback, right? And you're just constantly back and forth all, right. every day all day long it's it's the mo- the closest relationship you have with people and the most difficult because it's so stressful all the time and you're always dealing with so many ups and downs um i look at the three of us always started as best friends and we still are so our our relationship is strong mm-hmm. um and yeah i don't know it's i think it's tough. it's easy to lose sight of this when you start when you and especially because i've worked on projects too where it's it, it, you're you're pushing them for years and years and years and sometimes you lose sight of what you derive the most pleasure from yep well so what do you derive the most pleasure from um for me it's really owning what i do i i've never had a real boss i besides my part-time jobs in college so um, I don't know what would happen if it was no longer all about the way I wanted to do things, right. which is how I grew up. I bossed my whole family around, and I don't see myself being in a different position. Um, so, It's a privilege and a curse sometimes, yes, right? It, they say it's lonely. That's very true. It's just hard because you're the only person who understands all angles. And so everyone has an opinion, but their opinion is around their world, mm-hmm. and it doesn't actually work with everyone involved. And so at the top, you're seeing everything. And there's always a reason I feel like every day is making a concession to something. The decisions are always – there's always reasons that it's good and bad. There's never like 100% this is going to be amazing. There's always, well, this could happen or this could happen. So which is the less of two evils? (laughs) And it's making that decision 20 times a day. When you were asked um, what inspires you most to succeed, you said yourself. Yes. What do you mean? So I have a – my viewpoint on life is that the only person – and it doesn't come from anywhere depressing or – you know, negative, but the only person you really can count on is yourself. Not for because people are bad, but because well, in the end people die. Like anything can happen, and the only person you can count on is yourself. And if you are happy with yourself and enjoy your time, then hopefully you'll always be okay, right? And so I've always I'm been like that forever. It's just like always I have to make sure I can rely on just myself. I haven't been in the position where I have to necessarily, but that's always been my viewpoint, and I want to feel like that forever. And I think having, you know, your own company and standing on your own two feet is what drives me. Is it helpful to remind yourself, I've done a bit of this too, that stakes are low? When you consider anything like yeah. mortality in a life, mm-hmm. and like you lower the stakes and things become easier? Yeah, it gets easier. I'm a very anxiety-prone person and yeah. very shy, so this whole doing this whole company has been a, you quite know, the learning curve. That's interesting that you say that because there's nothing about you sitting here comes across as I know, I've as learned. Yeah. It's been a, a long, lifelong journey of learning how to not be shy, Um and this is the most extreme because I do all hands every other week. <laughs> it's like, but you said growing up you would boss people. Bossy around. my family, but I was shy. So okay. in the in kindergarten in the playground, I would always sit in the corner and a fifth grader came over and kicked me, a boy, because I was like the freak in the corner who didn't play with anyone else. And I never went to parties in high school. I was always super antisocial. Would people know that that's shyness or would some people say looking at it like, no, that's uh, there's passive aggressive or that's – Well, I think it comes off sometimes like that because yeah. that's the problem with being shy. Yeah, yeah that's it. It yeah. can come off people wrong. People interpret it differently. Yeah. Um, and so that's hard. And I just learned to – one is smiling through everything. My mom taught me that, making eye contact. Like there are little things that I learned that if I just kept doing, it kind of faked the shyness. Right. Um, and, of course, everything gets easier. My first podcast was a nightmare, and now I'm on my 20th, and I'm fine, <laughs> right? Yeah. I didn't have any yeah, issues great. this morning. But um, that's – That's so funny you mentioned the smiling thing because that, like, that would be the number one red flag as a guy 
I would never. You would never want to be told to smile more. Yeah, from a man. That's like <laughs> the mansplaining. That might be number two. Yeah. Right. Yep. But it makes you f- seem like you're comfortable when that's you're true. smiling to someone you're talking to. That's when you're shy. <laughs> that's true. Let's get to the mantra: fail fast, fix fast, learn fast. Yes. So give it back to me. What, what, where does it come from? So it comes from my experience in the last six years, and I think experience in life. Uh, again, back to all, the only thing you count on is change. Truly, honestly, if you really think about that statement, and for me, a very type A planner type, that took a while to realize. But now I, now that I've taken it in, I've, it's really kind of set me free um, to say like everything's always going to change. You're never going to get it right the first time, but it's the fear of failing that stops you, or it's the um, reaction to the fail that can stop you. So as long as you fail, you trip, you pick back up, you keep going, you learn from it, so you don't keep doing the same yeah. thing. Um, that's how you move forward for anybody in anything. I, th- I think. Finally, is there – I keep saying finally. Just forget it. Just ignore it. It's a, it's a nervous stretch myself. The um, Is there anything that you're not doing that you'd like to be doing? I mean, there's a lot that I'd like to be doing in my company or personal life. Yeah, in terms of as an entrepreneur. I think it's uh, it's getting together with the community more. I, it's very hard to figure out – what I'm having a hard time with now is figuring out where my time should be spent because um, you have the external stuff and the more public things – uh, you have the in, like actually in, internally product things, um, and then there's just growing as a as a CEO, and and how I do that is by meeting people and CEOs mm-hmm. who've done it before, um, and I and I'd like to continue working on on like some kind of support community for me to be a part of. I know it's out there, so that's my goal in 2018. And then in terms of balance, uh, professional and personal, you say you're, you're married. I have no balance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you're in a long distance relationship. Yes. Now, how does that uh, how does that work? So we've been together since high school, which is very embarrassing, but it happened. In California? or No, in, we met in Miami. So I'm from Switzerland, and I grew up in Miami and London. Got and it. he's from Miami. His family's Cuban. So we went to high school together. Okay. Um, and as I said, he's a heart surgeon, so his career has been equally intense mm-hmm. in a different way. Um, and when I go visit him, I don't really even see him. So it helps that because he's working or he's uh, okay. asleep yeah. from his hour work week, a uh, hundred hour work week. Um, so I think it doesn't. My personal life by having not, I'm not single, so I'm not out dating. I'm not being, um, I'm not kind of getting conf- not confused, but like putting other time into dating. Yeah, it's not time consuming. Yeah, yeah. and then I, he, I'm not living with him, so I don't have. So I truly, I'm just have time for work <laughs> and my dog and hiking. Right. Um, but I'm good. I've gotten really good at self-care. I know that's a big trending thing, but it is important. And, yeah. it, and I've noticed a difference in, in my ability to lead and, and to make good decisions. Like in terms of meditation? or Meditation. Yeah. I try to hike every weekend that I'm in town. I love going to the beach. Yeah. Um, just getting outside, uh, having alone time. Because as I said, I'm pretty antisocial or introverted <laughs> is I know. the right word. I, I, and I coming from my job is so not introverted that I use weekends to really decompress. Yeah. How long have you been married? Three years. Three years. Okay, wow. So you got married very young. We got married young because he was going to med school. Yeah. And for me, and he went to Penn in Philly. So for me to go, it was kind of like, let's make it official before I moved to Philly. Right. There you go. <laughs> okay. Um, well, listen, you, you've had uh, tremendous success. You're 26. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. At this pace, you, you might retire before 40. That would be It's possible. Wonderful. I don't know if what I would do retired, but... <laughs> Maybe think, my retirement plan is to have a dog school. You spend school. time with your ass. No, well, yeah, but he won't be retired at 40. But, that's true. But uh, training like a dog school would be fun. That's my dream retirement. Um, I think we're done. Thank Great. you so much. Thank you for having and, me. And it's I appreciate fun to be you in coming person. in here. Yeah. yeah. Thanks Thank so you. much. Thanks. 
That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcastone.com. Hi, this is Ben Dominich, the host of the Federalist Radio Hour. We're a daily show coming to you five days a week from Washington, D.C., where we interview our nation's top journalists, politicians, authors, chefs, economists, entertainers, and more. If you're looking for a contrarian discussion on news, politics, or culture, give us a listen and subscribe at PodcastOne.com, the new Podcast One app, or at Apple Podcasts. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine & More. Did you know there were over one million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fun hunting for your brilliant brunch, Riesling. Ham's sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine & More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.